Thanks for listening to another Contemplate podcast brought to you by Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. Pastor David Robinson is our teacher, and today continues looking at the life of Saul, who has just had an amazing conversion experience. We're in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, and here's Pastor David. So it says this in chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Okay. So immediately, immediately after Saul just chooses to follow Christ, immediately he's out there serving Christ. And this is an interesting thing because a lot of us, the the kind of common um, Christianity that sort of has built up um, can sometimes be misinterpreted. And we think that what you do is you sort of accept Christ and that's kind of like you get your get out of hell free card um, and and you don't have to go to a hot place anymore and, and now you get to go to heaven, you stick that thing in your pocket and then you go on and kind of live your own way. But that's not the nature of what salvation is. And and Paul shows us that. Saul, Paul, I'll use those interchangeably because he becomes Paul later. Um, Saul shows us that that is not actually it. The first thing that happens is the submission to the lordship of Christ. He goes from being totally against Christ to completely following him. Immediately, okay? Immediately, he's doing what God's called him to do. That is the nature of what it means to come to the Lord. Not that you assent that you believe in him or that you even believe that he died for your sins or something like that as a belief, but that you assent to his lordship. You submit and say, I'm going to follow you. Not only have you died for my sins and risen again, defeated sin and death and hell, not only have you come and cared about me, this human on this little planet spinning in a big universe, not only those things, but because of that, I choose to follow you. And, And Saul shows us, this is what Christianity looks like. It is not, okay, I accepted Jesus and now I move on and do what I was doing before. It's, I accepted Jesus and my life changes and I'm now serving him instead of myself. So we we see that, okay? Um, And in the last message, verse 5 of of chapter 9, we saw that Saul asked Jesus a question. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And now we see Saul proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. So he found out, who are you, Lord? I'm the Son of God. Now we're going to take a little, um, we're going to do a little theology minute here, okay? Theology is basically just the study of God. That's all that means. Um, but there's, there's an issue here that I want to address because I sometimes hear this uh, incorrectly spoken by some people. They see that Jesus is called the Son of God in the Bible and Scripture, and so they presume that that means, that they also see that we're called children of God, and so they presume it's the same thing. Jesus is the Son of God. Well, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not, you know, he's not really God. He's the Son of God. Like, we're all sons of God. We're all part of God. This is big in the Northwest. We're all, we all came from God, and we'll go back to God, and we're all the children of God. Okay, maybe. Um, to some extent, it is true and certainly scriptural that those of us who follow Christ are God's children. But this is a very different thing that we're talking about when Saul says Jesus is the Son of God. People understood what he meant by that, okay? You guys have probably heard the verse in John 3, 16, where it says, gave his only begotten son. You've seen the guys at the football game, and they've got like the clown wig on. They hold up the little John 3, 16 sign. Maybe you've looked that up. Maybe you know the verse by heart. Many people do. Um, But that's what Saul is talking about. 
He's talking about Jesus is the only begotten son of God. That's the, that's the implication of this statement. The only begotten son. Now, why does that matter? And first of all, only suggests something, right? There aren't any other begotten sons of God. I'm not God's begotten son. You're not God's begotten son or daughter. We may be his children, but in a different sense. So C.S. Lewis, who I think I've quoted before, but I'm going to quote him this time. He has something to say about this that I think helps describe it for us. This is what he says. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. Now, that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. Okay, so... What God begets is God, okay? He's the only begotten son of God. He's begotten, that means he's God. So when Saul says Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he's usually saying Jesus is God. Okay, last confusing part of that is, well, normally your son comes after you. I have a son, he came after me, right? And so normally that's the way that works. Here, we, we use this language for our understanding, okay? But Jesus did not come after the father. Okay? He did not come after the Father. The Son of God, rather, did not come after the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, always having existed. Okay? Three persons, one God. Now, Jesus, the Christ, was born at a time and space on this earth, right? But he was God already. Okay? He came and was incarnated. We'll talk more about that at Christmas. Pretty amazing stuff. But the Son of God... Okay, the Ancient of Days, all, all this idea existed. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit always existed as one person. So there was no begetting that was in time different because, of course, God's timeless. So this is complicated. If you have questions about it, come talk to me later or make an appointment. I love to talk about the Trinity and how all that all works and whatever. But I want to, what I'm wanting to push away is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, kind of like we're all sons and daughters of God. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Okay. Um, let's move on to verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? All right. So Saul's conversion is amazing. I don't mean amazing like how we say that every time something slightly interesting happens. I mean amazing like what the word really means. Like, I'm amazed. I'm in awe. I'm dumbstruck. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. This is amazing, right? Truly amazing. These folks in Damascus were waiting for Saul to get there with these letters so that he could go help them take care of this Christian problem, these Christ followers, right? Trying to, trying to change their traditions, trying to change the way they're doing things. He's going to come and bind these guys up. So when he shows up in the synagogue, it's all high five. I don't know if they high five back then, but let's just assume that was a Jewish thing in the first century. And they're like, hey, Saul, what's up, dog? And he's like, yeah. And so he comes in and they're thinking he's going to take care of this for us. This guy, remember, this guy was vicious against Christianity. He no doubt had a reputation. 
This is the guy that's consenting to Stephen's death. This is the guy that says that he was imprisoning and voting for the death of Christians in Jerusalem. And here he comes to Damascus, and these guys are waiting for him in these synagogues where he preaches. And then he gets up in front of them, and they're waiting to hear his plan of attack. And instead he says, Jesus is the Son of God. Now these guys are, right? They don't know what is going on. He came here, I mean, is it a joke? I, I, I wonder what it was like in that, in, those, in that room, in the synagogue, as he says these things, and they're thinking, wait a second, you've come to destroy Jesus and his followers, and here you are, and you're now one of them? It's pretty crazy stuff, okay? This guy, it says he's causing havoc in the church. He's breathing in threats and murder. This is, this is what we hear from the scripture going from that being zealous, wanting to destroy Christ's church, to being a follower of Christ, totally submitted to him. This is a flip, okay? All right, so what happens next? You would think that I would read the next verse to tell you what happens next, but you'd be wrong. When we read Scripture, and I think we've talked about this before, Scripture is, while it's different books, it's all one, okay? And in order to interpret Scripture and understand Scripture, we have to understand all of it. And so, because we have to understand all of it, sometimes you'll hear me quote from other parts of Scripture that help us understand or that are additional pieces of history to what we're reading here at the same time. We'll do that a couple times today. So the next part that we're going to read is actually from Galatians. So Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, it says this. This is, this is Saul talking, Paul at the time. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Paul tells us that he did not receive his understanding of the things he was teaching, the gospel, the good news, the truth. He did not receive it by going to people to get it. Okay. He received it from Christ directly. Now, this is important because Paul becomes an apostle. If you remember early on in Acts, we read about the apostles having to name a new one because Judas had betrayed Christ and died. And so they, needed, they wanted a new, a 12th apostle. And we talked about whether or not it was supposed to be the guy they named or whether Paul was really supposed to be that guy. We're not going to get into that right now. But the point is, the criteria they had was that this person had to be with them the whole time. The whole time that Jesus was there, he had to have been there with them to have learned from Jesus what they learned from Jesus. Okay? Directly from Jesus. Now, Saul tells us here, I learned directly from Jesus. Now, where did he get this learning? Because he's now preaching, right? So we've got to know where he got it. This is what he tells us in the next couple of verses in Galatians 1. This is 13 through 18. It says, For you have heard of my former con conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Okay? He didn't go to people to learn. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia. And returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. Let me tell you what, what's important here. What he's telling us, what Saul's telling us is that he went out into Arabia, into the desert, and was taught by Jesus, we think, for a better part of three years. Okay, that's happening in, in, in this section. 
Okay, Arabia is this large area, um, you know, in this area of the world. It's called Nabatea at the time, Nabatea, Nabatea, uh, potato, potato, whatever. I don't know exactly how to say all these words, but that's what it's called, okay? It, it, the, the capital of Arabia, this big desert area, is a city called Petra, which I think we have a picture of. This is that really cool place where it's like carved into the rocks. That's, that's Petra, okay? This was the capital of Arabia, this desert area. And Saul goes out into the desert to learn from the Lord. Now, we have some patterns here in Scripture. We have folks consistently having this type of experience before they start their ministry. You have Moses, okay? Goes to the wilderness, right? Then he comes back and starts his ministry. You have John the Baptist out in the desert. You have Elijah out in the desert. And in fact, you have Jesus Christ himself going on the desert to be tempted for 40 days before he starts his ministry, right? Gets baptized, goes out in the desert. We have the same thing here with Paul. He goes out in the desert. And what I think happened here is he goes out in the desert. This is this time where he learns directly from Jesus. Jesus is teaching him directly. I don't know exactly how it worked. I don't know if this was in, all in visions or if this was the Lord speaking to his heart. I don't know exactly how it worked, but he was learning the gospel directly from Jesus Christ as he's out in the desert during this time. And it's also interesting to know that the disciples who were under Jesus were under him for three years during his ministry. And we have here Saul under Jesus for three years, you know, directly learning from him. So when he becomes an apostle, he has all the earmarks that he needs to be an apostle. Okay. Um, one of the reasons he does this, even though he's a very educated man, and I mean a very educated man. So it seems like he gets saved. I mean, he knows scripture better than maybe anybody, right? Really, really, really well. Very few people knew scripture like he knew. He may have had most of it memorized, okay? And yet he needed all this time to prepare for his ministry. Why is that? In 1 Timothy 3.6, we hear um, about what one of the qualifications for an elder, an overseer, a bishop, it's different words used for it, a pastor. One of the qualifications for that is, it says this, he must not be a recent convert so that he won't become arrogant and fall into the devil's condemnation. It's saying he must not be a novice, a, a new convert, someone who's recently come to the Lord, which we know Saul had, right? Um, the word used here is neophyte. That's what the Greek word, how you would actually translate. Neophyte is a young plant, a freshly planted plant. The idea is that if you're freshly planted, your roots aren't deep enough to withstand the storms, to withstand the temperature changes. You can't take the heat. And because of that, you are tempted towards pride in this position that you've gotten when you haven't prepared yourself and matured and become ready. That's why we don't immediately take somebody who says, hey, I'm following Jesus now. And we're like, okay, why don't you be the pastor next week? And, and it's happened in the past that people have been elevated too quickly and bad things have happened. This is a warning for a reason. And so with Saul, he goes out in the desert. He spends his time not just learning the truth and understanding how scripture relates to and points to Christ that Jesus is teaching him. He's also maturing. Okay. So um, he needed some time. He needed some time for instruction and humility. Um, and we think it's about three years. Like I said, there's a few views on the timeline here. And this may get a little boring for some of you. I find it fascinating, but there's a few views on the timeline. I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. Okay. Here are the events that we're going to read about. And, I'm going to, and then we're going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what some different views are on how the timeline work. Okay. So we have his conversion. We have him originally preaching in Damascus, which we read in verse 21, preaching that Jesus is the son of God. Okay. We have this time in the desert. We have the preaching in Damascus that is 
in verse 22 and going on where he's, where he's persecuted, they try to kill him, and, and, he, and then he goes to Jerusalem. Those are the things in the timeline. Now, there's several options. I'm going to give you three of, of them. Okay, the first option is this, that he comes, he gets converted, he goes, and all of this stuff that talks about his preaching in Damascus happens. Then he goes out in the desert, learns from Jesus, comes back to Damascus for a minute, and then goes to Jerusalem. Okay, that's, that's one. Option two, he goes, he gets saved, he directly goes out into the desert. Then he comes back and does all this preaching in Damascus, then he goes to Jerusalem. Then there's option three. Option three is that Saul's converted, then he starts preaching in Damascus, saying Jesus is the Son of God, then he goes out into the desert, then he comes back and starts preaching again in Damascus, that's when the persecution happens, and then he goes to Jerusalem. Okay, so basically between verse 21, the last one we read, and 22, the next verse we're going to read, is where this period of time happens where he's out in the desert. Okay, that's the one that I go with. That's, that's my opinion is number three. Now, you can hold any of these views that you want, um, but if you want to be right, you'll hold the one that I hold. Okay, so no, it's, not, it's really not that important, but to some extent, it helps us to understand and put in context what's happening here. Okay, the history is actually important to understanding how things work. So, so that's what I think. And so we're going to get into verse 22 here. And I'm, so what I'm thinking is, is that verse 21 happens, then we have this time in the desert, and we come into verse 22. So what does it say? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so we see it says that he increased all the more in strength. So here's, that's, that's why I think that this is what happened in between. That he comes out, right away he's preaching, Jesus is the Son of God. Then he goes out and he learns what he needs to learn. He understands how all the scripture that he knows connects to who Jesus Christ is, right? He matures, and so when he comes back, he's grown in strength and confounds the Jews, preaches that Jesus is the Christ. Why doesn't Luke tell us about the desert stuff at all? Well, because Luke isn't giving us a biography of Paul. He's giving us a biography of the church. And so what's important to him is what's going on with the church. That's why we don't hear about it in Luke, but yet Paul tells us about it in another place, okay? All right, so he confounded the Jews. Saul was... It's hard to, uh, somebody, uh, somebody I read said something like he probably had the equivalent of like two PhDs by the time he was 21. This guy was educated, okay? He was educated in the ways, um, in the, what's, what, what you'd call the liberal ways, the ways of the world. He, he knew philosophy. He knew, the, he knew the Greek stuff. He knew it really, really well. He actually quotes philosophers in some places in scripture, right? When he's talking to the Athenians and stuff, which we'll get into later. He also knew the Old Testament, and I mean knew it, understood it, not just the words, which he probably had, like I said, had memorized an awful lot of, but he also understood all the complicated parts of the theology of it, okay? This guy was super, super educated, okay? So when he comes in to these guys, he's like the best lawyer and the smartest guy in the world all wrapped into one, and they are confounded, Confounded. In other words, there's nothing that they can say back to him. His arguments are incredible. He it says he proves that Jesus is the Christ. He proves it. And these guys are unable to say anything about it. He basically uses the Old Testament. By the way, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Christ, about the Messiah. This, this, this person that the Jews are all waiting for, this Messiah, there's hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. 
So he's able to point to all these, not to mention the entire sacrificial system, the Passover, the, to show that Jesus was the Passover lamb, all of these complicated things. He's able to show them so much so, these things match the life of Christ and his, his crucifixion, his resurrection. All of these things are so clearly prophesied that he's able to confound them to the point where they have nothing to say. So, of course, when you are that good at arguing and you come in and you prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, of course they immediately believed, right? Let's see. Verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Uh, so, apparently, Saul is incredibly good. He's great at making arguments, but not great at making friends. Okay? And sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes the guy who is the best arguer is not always the most fun guy to hang out with, right? Sometimes the guy who's right all the time and, and, and has that great ability to argue and all that kind of stuff, sometimes he's not very popular. I've sometimes been like that from time to time, um, you know, and, and, and so I, I've realized, you know what, I may be winning this argument, but I'm not sure I'm winning a friend here. Um, and I think that's where Saul was at. He was incredibly powerful as basically a lawyer, an arguer, or whatever, but they, didn't, they were rejecting what he had to say. And now they want to kill him. And the persecutor has become the persecuted. This guy who had been persecuting the Christians, the Christ followers, this guy who had consented to the death of Stephen, the first person who was killed for Christ, this guy is now in danger of being killed himself. Tables have turned on Saul. They conspired to kill Jesus, Stephen, now they're conspiring to, to kill Paul. And he had been Saul. He had been part of that other thing, and now it came back around. So let's look at the next couple of verses, 24 and 25. It says, But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through a wall, through the wall in a large basket. So um, apparently he had some friends because somebody told him that they were conspiring to kill him. He found out about it, which would have been very scary. I don't know how many of you have been in a situation where there's a group of people who wanted to kill you, but I'm guessing that it's hard to sleep at night with that going on. But they tell him that, and so the, the, they know that these guys are watching the gates day and night. So Damascus is a city. It's got walls all the way around it. There are seven gates in the city of Damascus, okay? And you have to get in or out. You have to go through one of these gates. These gates are all being watched so that he cannot get out. Uh, Paul tells us a little bit more about this, this adventure. In 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, it says this. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. That's pretty encouraging. Even when a large group of people were trying to kill Saul, God provided a way of escape. You've been listening to Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. And let me invite you to come hear Pastor David in person. Get all the info you need at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to see you this Sunday. And be sure to check out the next episode for more on the life and ministry of Saul here on Contemplate.